This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Uh, this week, we are talking to one of the foremost experts uh, on China and East Asia in the United States, uh, Sheena Chestnut Greitens. Uh, she'll be joining the LBJ School of Public Affairs and the Clemens Center for National Security at the University of Texas at Austin here in August of 2020. We're very excited. Uh, Sheena's a very busy person. She's also a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, where she frequently writes and uh, presents research. She's an affiliate uh, with the Korea Chair at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and she's a member of the Digital Freedom Forum at the Center for New American Security. Before joining us uh, in Austin, uh, Sheena was an assistant professor of political science at the University of Missouri. Uh, Her work focuses on American national security, East Asia, authoritarian politics, foreign policy, uh, questions about surveillance and surveillance technology, which we'll talk about. And her special emphasis is, of course, on China and the Korean Peninsula. Uh, Sheena, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's great to be on with you. Our, our pleasure. Uh, before we turn to Sheena, of course, we have uh, Zachary scene setting poem. What's the title of your poem today, Zachary? A Superpower Scorned. Okay, let's hear about A Superpower Scorned. It was the afterthought of the war, the millions used for bayonet practice and the screaming babies dying in Nanjing. It was the afterthought of the reconstruction, the large neighbor to Japan stumbling over its own tail, the war that we lost and was never resolved, the beginning of today. It was the afterthought of the Cold War, the third wheel superpower on the Security Council that professed conformism and mass revolution, threat only to its portion of the globe. It was the afterthought of the Asian economic revolution. As Japan built the Toyotas that invaded suburban driveways, it was the seed of a superpower of future domination germinating in oblivion. And then suddenly it was the center. Presidents railed against the economic threat. Jobs disappeared across the Pacific, and wealth suddenly condensed over China. And now everything bears its seal. Even the French ceramic coasters have its signature. The American flag in my bedroom has it stitched into its stars and stripes. China was the afterthought that became the looming shadow, and how with its billions of people, how with its mountains and rivers and valleys, how with its deep water dominant ports, how do we not see this coming? Love hath no fury like a superpower scorned. What's your poem about, Zachary? My poem is really about how uh, underestimated China really was on the international stage until uh, it seems suddenly it became this global superpower that uh, really loomed large over um, American policy discussions for the past few decades. Uh, Sheena, is that accurate? Ha- ha- did the United States and other countries un- underrate China as a strategic competitor for too long? Well, I think that the the view of China has always been a country that has a tremendous amount of potential. Um, there's the quote from Napoleon that when China wakes, um, she will she will shake the world. Um, 
And so, uh, but the, but there was also this sense for a long time, China was a country, as um, as Zachary's poem mentioned, it was a, a country that was devastated, not just by war with Japan, but by its own civil conflict, which stretched really from the late 20s. Um, all the way through 1949 and the CCP's rise to power. Um, and the country, to, to a certain extent, um, either turned inward or at least away from the United States and Western Europe toward the Soviet Union, toward the international communist movement. Um, and so certainly there's there's a sense that China's engagement with the world, as we've observed it in the last few years, is... Um, is both sort of a, a pattern um, that has been sort of in the awakening since the 1970s um, with the launch of, of China's reform and opening policy, um, but also that really under Xi Jinping that we are seeing a new approach um, both to domestic politics and to foreign policy under uh, Xi Jinping's leadership. So uh, when I was writing a book about Henry Kissinger years ago, he viewed the opening to China as as the pinnacle of his career in many respects and the pinnacle of American foreign policy. But it seems to me that your work shows so well uh, how how much more complicated Chinese-American relations have become since the early 1970s. What's made it so much more complex? How have we gone from this moment of euphoria in 1972 when Nixon and Kissinger visit Mao Zedong and Zhou Enlai? How have we gone from that moment to where we are today? Well, when you think about the the motivation and the the conditions that made the opening to China possible, I mean that was a, a historic and a sort of you know t- I describe it when I I teach um, my undergraduate class on Chinese politics and foreign policy, sort of a, a moment when the tectonic plates of world politics shifted. Um, in the sense of China's realigning itself from the Soviet Union, which it had had split from um, toward the United States. And so when you think about that, um, you know, the security arguments at the time um, were really in favor of China cooperating with and even to some extent aligning with the United States as a way of balancing and creating some protection against the Soviet Union. Um, which it was very, it was worried about the Brezhnev doctrine. It was worried about Czechoslovakia, about the Lin Biao incident, which Mao saw not only as a threat to China, but a direct sort of personal um, threat to his leadership. Um, So there was this sense um, that security, although there there was mistrust over Vietnam and Taiwan in particular, Um, There was also a sense that there were compelling security reasons for the United States and China to cooperate and that they had a real overriding shared interest in um, in balancing against Soviet power. Um, And so, you know, as we think about what's changed since that moment um, with the dissolution of the Soviet Union and this incredible rise um, in, in ch- of China itself, um, which really has occurred since, um, since Nixon's visit, right? Nixon visited in February of 1972. Um, 
Mao died, Nixon left office, reform, uh, the normalization process was completed at the end of that decade. We sometimes forget how long that process took. Um, That's right. That's right. But, you know, even if you think about normalization occurred um, within about a year of Deng Xiaoping launching the policy that became known as reform and opening, China's reopening to the outside world. Um, and re-engaging in a very different way with the world at large, um, and um, and so China was China itself was in a very different place, and because of that, I think it, it, it's inevitable that U.S.-China relations would be at a very at a very different place. Um, and so now, what we're seeing, I think, there's always been this mix of cooperation and competition in the U.S.-China relationship, but the security rationale that bound the two countries together when they normalized relations um, d- no longer is there. Um, and in its place has come a set of security issues to the fore where the potential for cooperation or the shared mutual I- interest is is simply not as clear. And so the security realm, I think, has become more, more conflictual Um and the emphasis on competition has be- has become a, a bigger and bigger part of the U.S.-China relationship in the last, um, really, I think, over the gradually over the course of the time um, since reform and opening. Um, but again, I also do think that there was a, um, you know, the the ascendance to the leadership to um, uh to the top of the Chinese political system um, of Xi Jinping in 2012 um, is also a, an inflection point that it's taken us a little bit of time to recognize in terms of what it means for China's internal politics and also for for the way that China approaches the world. I see some fairly major changes that have emerged under Xi Jinping. And, and how would we think about those changes in comparison to the figure that, that many of us as historians focus on, which is Mao Zedong? Is, is, is Xi Jinping sort of creating another uh, emperorship for himself? Or how do we understand his presidency for life, as I, as I understand he's made it into? Yeah, I mean, one of the the striking things is it was the, the elimination of term limits in the Chinese political system. Um, and that that surprised um, outside observers in part because, um, you know, when Xi Jinping came to power in 2012, there was this sense that China had actually moved away from the personalist leadership that we associate with Mao. It had moved, it, it hadn't ever sort of quite explicitly repudiated the cult of personality in the same, same way that the Soviet Union did when it did de-Stalinization. Um, but that, China had moved from the sort of personalist, individualist um, model uh, that Mao represented to a much more collective leadership represented by the Standing Committee of the Politburo, the seven to nine men who have have been at the apex of China's political system. Um, And so if you think about Jiang Zemin, Hu Jintao, um, the figures who, um, who have headed China since um, since Deng Xiaoping, there was more of an emphasis on collective leadership. And what we've seen is that Xi Jinping re-centralized power and to an extent repersonalized it to the point where there's Xi Jinping thought, 
Um, there's an app that lets you study Xi Jinping thought. You oh rarely gosh. go a page uh, or a day without seeing Xi Jinping on not one but multiple headlines in the People's Daily or other state media outlets. Um, and so the amount that Xi Jinping has become both a symbolic and a, an actual sort of political personalist leader, what we would call personalist in political science, meaning that power really is concentrated in an individual rather than um, in a, a, an institution like the party or the military, um, is, is really um, you know, a reversal of what we thought we were seeing in post-Mao China. Um, and along with that, we've seen pretty massive changes to both domestic politics and foreign policy. Um, so the area I work a lot on, as you mentioned in your um, in your introduction, um, is about uh, domestic security and surveillance. And Xi Jinping has essentially completely overhauled the internal security, the police, the coercive apparatus. Um, he has drafted about a dozen new laws. He has re replaced the personnel leadership of half a dozen institutions, the courts, the police, the state security ministry, um, the armed police, the military. Um, he's restructured the military. He's reorganized the paramilitary people's armed police. Um, there's just this whole incredible raft of changes um, that he's made that have cumulatively completely overhauled the security infrastructure that keeps the party in power in China, what they would call political or regime security. Um, and then at the same time, um, you know, that there have also been big changes to um, to China's role in the world and China's approach to foreign policy. Um, so we see that for example, in the reclamation of islands in the South China Sea, literally creating islands where rocks or low tide formations were all that existed before and then putting, you know, runways capable of, of receiving significantly sized military aircraft on them. Um, so there are literally islands and territories that didn't exist when Xi Jinping came to power that now exist in the South China Sea. We have the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, we have a very, very different pattern of China pursuing leadership positions in international organizations, um, which again is a change because China participated in international organizations much more actively starting in the 80s and 90s. Um, but to see China now occupy the leadership role in four of 15 UN specialized agencies is a very, very different environment for global governance than we've seen before. Um, and so I think both Chinese domestic politics and foreign policy have really changed pretty tremendously, um, even in the last sort of eight or nine years under Xi Jinping's leadership. That's an incredible encapsulation of so much. Um, before we turn to the discussion of domestic surveillance, which is one of the areas you've done groundbreaking work on, Zachary has a question for you. Uh, I was wondering uh, why we haven't seen uh, the same sort of democratic backlash within China to this growth in authoritarianism. Is it because the Chinese people have chosen economic prosperity over political freedom? That's a great question. Um, and it would be fantastic if we could do surveys without restriction in China and and count on the reliability of the answers that, that we get. Um, it's really hard to gauge what the distribution of preferences is in China, what citizens actually think. Um, 
And, and then I'll get to your question about, um, about backlash and, and kind of some of the other factors that I think help shape, um, public opinion in China. Um, but first of all, um, I think we have to be careful when we look at survey results or see interviews with people because we know, and this is actually something that we learned from people um, who worked on Eastern Europe and life under communism there, is that there's this phenomenon called preference falsification where people will outwardly behave as if they agree with the regime, even if their private beliefs are different, because being the only dissenter can be quite lonely. Um, and, and in many cases, just physically dangerous when you live in a dictatorship. And so what happens is that there's this cu cumulative effect where everyone looks around and all of the citizens are pretending um, and acting as if they agree with what the, the regime is doing. And a great many of them might in private disagree, but there's no way to know that because everyone falsifies their, their external behavior out of a natural human desire for self-protection and to protect your loved ones. Um, and that's also why we get these really unexpected cascades. Because once one person, think about what happened in Tunisia during the Arab Spring, one person breaks the mold, someone else who actually secretly agrees with them says, oh, well, they did it. I could do that too. And you can very quickly get these cascades where suddenly it feels less risky and more morally or socially appropriate to express your true feelings, your true preferences. And that's why um, that, that phenomenon has been used to explain why we saw in places like East Germany and elsewhere in Eastern Europe under communism, this really quick switch from a seemingly stable regime to one um, that overnight all of a sudden wasn't. Um, so, so that's kind of a note of caution. I just think we need to be a little bit careful, um, about how much we can actually know about what people think, um, in any non-democracy. And that includes China. Um, but second, the other thing that China did, especially after Tiananmen Square, was that the party decided that they had not done enough patriotic education. And so they launched, there's been some great, um, entire books written on this campaign, um, to educate Chinese citizens about the fact that about this, one of the key concepts that's used in this curriculum is called the century of humiliation. So it begins with the opium wars and exploitation by the British, and it goes through a long list of foreign predations, exploitation, victimization, and abuse of, of the Chinese people until they're finally liberated from, from foreign imperialism and foreign predation by, of course, the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party. And so the way this history is taught now in a curriculum that goes from the time you're pretty young in China all the way through um, the college entrance exams um, really fosters a very strong sense of nationalism and suspicion of the intention of foreign powers, um, as well as this story, this narrative that, that only the Chinese Communist Party was capable of freeing China from being exploited by the rest of much of the rest of the world. Um, and so I think that nationalism is, is a really powerful factor. Today is the, the anniversary of a, a nationalist movement in China, the May 4th movement. Um, and so I think it's, it's also just a good reminder that patriotism and nationalism, um, exist in, in non-democracies too, and where a regime can convince people that their 
patriotically authentic, um, then they can often direct citizens' anger and blame outward rather than toward a desire for internal accountability. And I think sometimes we see that happening in China. Sure. And and it wouldn't be unique to China either. Um, just, just as a way of background for our listeners, the May 4th movement, of course, was was part of a uh, movement against foreign imperialism at the end of World War One in, in China. And it's, as you pointed out so well, it had been co-opted in many ways by the current Chinese leadership. Uh, I, I wanted to turn, Sheena, to the topic of domestic surveillance, which you've written so much about. One of the points you've made in some of your recent work is how the Chinese have not only developed an incredibly sophisticated, vibrant surveillance system within their country, but also how they've started exporting it to the world. Um, Could you say more about that and what what your particular uh, concerns are about that for the future of democracy in other countries? Yeah, sure. Um, So I would highly recommend there are a few documentaries or short news clips out there about the the growth of the Chinese surveillance state um, inside China itself. And in one of them, there's a BBC reporter who goes and, um, and has his picture taken at a police station in China. And then he gets in a taxi and gets out and starts walking toward the train station. And by the time he gets to the train station, um, the police have picked him up on a video monitor at the entrance and are able to intercept him. And it takes them about seven minutes to do so. Wow. Um, Based on facial recognition, video cameras, and this sort of very high-tech command center that exists in in that particular city. And that approach has now been um, scaled up and and used across China. Um, And so what's really interesting about this is that, um, you know, a lot of the initial reporting about this framed it as something that was, that that really just had implications inside China. And that is absolutely no longer true um, because these technologies are being exported and employed widely around the world. Um, so, so thanks for mentioning the, the paper. Um, it just came out with the Brookings Institution, and it, it talks about the fact that um, I had a research team working to try to locate as many of the countries where China has, has exported these, this technology to as possible. Um, and we found that there are over 80 countries right now that we can find. We know we're, we're missing at least a few. Um, where China has helped to set up what we call a surveillance and policing platform. And what's significant about the platforms is this is not just, they're not just sort of selling um, cameras. It's not just one specific type of hardware um, that can collect some super fancy kind of data. Um, What's actually really important about these platforms is their ability to take multiple types of data, right? So they might use a driver's license database and, welfare information in China, um, and then use information about your job, um, your party membership, where your parents work, um, and then um, the license plate on your car. And then so so when, for example, your license plate or your, your image is captured, that can be matched to your national ID number or the information about your car, which then is matched to your ID number, and all of this other information is instantly layered over it. Um, So you have a very, very complete file on somebody, their relationships, their employment, their engagement with the state, their history of protesting or petitioning, um, or other forms of contention, uh, contentious politics. Um, 
And so the power to pull all of that information together really quickly for surveillance and policing purposes is really powerful. And I think sometimes we tend to focus on, you know, the the super fancy, um, you know, heat sensing or infrared glasses or facial recognition enabled sunglasses, which is one of the crazier inventions I've seen. Um, but unless you can actually match that with all this other information, it's not that useful. Um, so it's actually this capability to do data integration that is so interesting. And that's what we found is showing up in at least about 80 other countries around the world. Um, in, 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 in recent years, too, we've, we've seen like a lot of backlash from American companies and their employees against cooperation with the Chinese uh, uh, surveillance state. Has that had an impact and, and, and has it been effective? Yeah, so you know, one of the one of the um, reasons there's been pushback is that some of those technology companies have, for example, been implicated in human rights abuses in Xinjiang, where China's um, Uyghur Muslim population has been subject to draconian limits on movement, and in some cases, forced internment and re-education in sort of political indoctrination camps. Um, And so there's been legislation in the United States and some real pushback on um, companies whose supply chains um, rely on on China or potentially on forced labor. There's there's actually a bill in front of the U.S. Congress related to um, forced labor in Xinjiang um, now. And I haven't checked in the last day or two to see where it's at, but I know that that bill has has been proposed. Um, But one of the interesting things about this technology Um, in terms of thinking about potential global backlash, is that it's actually showing up in both democracies and non-democracies. So this is not just that China is exporting to other authoritarian political systems and helping solidify dictatorship. Some of these tools are being used in places like Germany or Malta or places that are U.S. treaty allies like the Philippines. Um, And that raises a a, kind of a, a lot of different concerns. One is about data privacy. Um, and whether Chinese companies have backdoor ways of accessing the consumer data that that um, that the technology generates, um, there's questions about you know if China becomes the market dominant force, um, what effect will that have on strategic competition between U.S. and China? Um, and then there's also concern that this these surveillance technologies um, could and Zach, I think this is this is where your question was going, right? That that these questions could really or technologies could really damage the quality of democracy and limit human rights and civil liberties in um, recipient countries. So even if it goes to a country that's a democracy, the subsequent effect could be really corrosive on that that democracy. Um, and um, and so I think that that part of what this points to is the U.S. has a tendency sometimes to um, sort of approach this stuff as this is all about about China and China is the one exporting this and and here are the you know the issues and the risks we see with China um, and and getting this technology from China um, and the paper actually urges people to stop and say okay well if we're thinking about potential backlash or we're worried about the bad effects or the negative effects of adopting this technology maybe we need to ask the people who are adopting it what problems they're trying to solve um, and in many cases, um, these are local mayors or provincial governors who are concerned about crime, public safety, investment, and job creation, um, who, are, who are trying to reduce violent crime. 
Um, and this lo- they're convinced that this looks like a decent solution. Um, and so I think it's important to think about, you know, the demand side and for the U.S. to have conversations that aren't just sort of focused on China, but are also really focused on what are the problems in recipient countries that make them willing to consider or even want to consider adopting this technology in the first place? Because it, it may have really negative effects. We don't know yet. It's new. Um, It's a a powerful insight, Gina, to think think in terms of not just the Chinese exporting, but the import motivations that various uh, groups have for using this technology. Um, Before we turn to sort of where American policy might go and thinking about these issues, uh, we have to ask about North Korea, obviously, uh, in the news recently quite a lot with the the question about the uh, health of uh, Kim Jong-un, the dictator of North Korea. Uh, To what extent do you see China uh, having a very strong influence over the future of of North Korea? Or to what extent is North Korea somewhat independent from Chinese influence? So I think that's a a great question. Um, And, you know, one of the things that that I think this recent episode where Kim Jong-un went out of sight for, uh, you know, 15, 20 days and then reappeared... Um, was actually to point out a really urgent need, not just for the U.S. to think through, okay, what happens if he's not healthy, Um, but also for the U.S. to um, maintain and have conversations with as many uh, countries in the region as possible to try to make sure we understand what the what the potential scenarios are for if Kim Kim Jong-un actually does pass away. Um, He's not in good health. Um, That's been pretty clear for a while. And so even though he's okay right now, there's still a pretty clear need to think about what would the U.S. policy be if something happened. Um, One of the interesting things about North Korea is that, you know, around the same time Xi Jinping came to power in China, um, who was a leader, you know, who who wanted to do things differently than his immediate predecessors, um, Kim Jong-un came to power in North Korea, right? He he came into power in early um, 2012. Um, having been the designated successor for about two years. Um, It's one of the only times that we've seen a second hereditary succession. So power, um, we've had maybe 30-ish hereditary successions in dictatorships. They're actually pretty hard to do. Um, And no country other than North Korea that I can think of has pulled pulled that off twice in a row. Um, And... And so Kim Jong-un is also not cut from the same mold as his father. He styles himself much more like his grandfather. He's outgoing. He will speak in public, which his father never did. Um, But what's interesting about that is unlike Xi Jinping, who actually appears to have really changed policy, um, the change with Kim Jong-un seems to be more stylistic. Um, And there just seems to be a lot more continuity, right? Um, There's no sign that, that North Korea has abandoned or modified its desire to have a nuclear weapons arsenal um, or the capability to hit the United States with it, um, which it's it's now um, accomplished with a lot of its mis- recent missile testing. By recent, I mean sort of in the last decade, not in the last year or two. Um, right. And so in terms of foreign policy, there's actually much more continuity on the North Korean side than I think we've seen um, with China Although the China-North Korea relationship doesn't seem to have changed very much. Um, That's been a relationship for a long time where North Korea relies on China, but doesn't want to rely on it too much. Um, And so, you know, I don't think it's an accident that one of the things Kim Jong-un did was remove the person who had the best relationship with China 
um, who, his uncle, Cheng Song Tech, who he purged and then executed. Um, so, so I think it's, it's going to be really important for the United States and China to try to have constructive conversations um, about what might happen on the Korean Peninsula. But there's a lot of mistrust. The interests don't really, that's an area where the interests and what each side would, would prioritize or want don't overlap very well. And um, so it's been very, very difficult to get um, candid conversation going between the United States and China. Um, and the result is that right now, there's a lot of concern about what would happen in a scenario where it's not clear what's going on in North Korea if the U.S. or and or China had to, you know, try to step in to fill a, a power vacuum, um, would they be able to talk to each other, coordinate and avoid a clash that might just come out of, of straightforward miscommunication? Um, it's not, not clear right now that there's a procedure or a way in place to avoid that scenario, even though it would clearly be suboptimal for both sides. Um, but it's really hard to talk about. So that's a kind of kind of I think where things are. That's not an optimi- optimistic answer. I'm sorry. Not, not <laughs> at all. No, no. But but very helpful. I mean, you you really laid out uh, the strategic landscape for us, both with regard to Chinese policy in the South China Sea, with Chinese policy with regard to surveillance technologies, and with regard to North Korea. Uh, we always like to close Sheena with a discussion of where we go from here. Uh, where should we go in terms of policymaking? And, and what should citizens be looking for and arguing for? We are going to have an election in November. And uh, at some point, there will be some discussion of foreign policy in China. Uh, what should citizens be looking for? What should they be lobbying and arguing for? Sure. Um, gosh, I think that's a great question. And it is difficult to answer concisely. I will do my best, in part because this is such a complex and multifaceted relationship. These are the, the two biggest economic and military powers in the world. And their interaction encompasses literally every issue you could think of on the planet. Um, most of us probably would not have had public health at the top of our list of issues in the U.S.-China relationship agenda. Um, and yet, all of a sudden, our lives are being, you know, sort of overturned or massively impacted by the public health relationship between the two countries right now. Um, and that's just an example of how complex and how seemingly minor issues in the U.S.-China relationship, or at least issues that aren't high profile, can suddenly exert a huge effect on um, the lives of average Chinese people and average American citizens. Um, so I think, you know, as we as we think about American policy, um, you know, listening to what what are the, you know, the two candidates assumptions about the relationship with China, about the nature of the Chinese political system and about, um, you know, what America should be trying to do with China. What um, what are the objectives and what's the plan? Um and so um, I was listening this morning to some remarks by the Deputy National Security Advisor, Matt Pottinger, where he talked about um, the U.S., the current U.S. approach to China. And I would, I would commend those remarks. They're very, very interesting um, and fairly uh, sort of ide- focused on ideological competition. Um, 
And so the question is, you know, where does that leave the prospects for cooperation? He still sees, you know, a fair amount of room for cooperation, as I interpreted his remarks. Um, But we're going to be offered at some point, I think, an an alternative vision of what that relationship does and should look like. And it'll be important to think about what um, the actual points of difference are. Sometimes in campaigns, that can be tough to tell. Um, and, uh, there's also a real incentive for American politicians, usually in an electoral campaign season to kind of talk tough on China. Um, so kind of thinking about, you know, what, what the effects of those policies would be if they were actually carried out. I guess the last thing, if I can throw one thing in there on surveillance technology, I think this public health crisis has the potential to really revise how both democracies and non-democracies think about the use of surveillance technology. Test and trace does require some intrusion into um, citizens' sort of you know traditional conceptions of data privacy, at least as we we think about it here in the United States. Um, and right now, China has done a lot more in, for example, the UN or other standard setting bodies to propose a set of standards for surveillance technology um, and and related telecommunications or other other technologies that are used for surveillance. Um, and so one of my recommendations, I think, is that the U.S. needs um, and should have a, a much more comprehensive strategy um, for what kind of standards it wants in the world um, that can accomplish some of our b- goals in, for example, public health, but that remain compatible with American values and interests like civil liberties, democracy, and, and human freedom. Um, and I, I don't, um, I think that's, you know, for me, that's a, because it's the area I work on, um, that's an area where I'd like to see more proactive U.S. leadership um, because right now I think China um, is is pushing ahead and we risk having China fill that gap if the U.S. doesn't, um, doesn't pursue that comprehensive strategy soon. Um, otherwise, man, it's just, it's such a huge complex relationship. I could, I could give in, I could talk for a few more minutes on the economy, but I'll, I'll stop there. No, you've given us a lot to think about with regard to, uh, strategic relations and security issues. Zachary, for, for young people like yourself, uh, looking at these issues, uh, do these security issues resonate with you? Uh, is it, is it possible to find space to think about them? Uh, in the context of, of obviously the, the pandemic and other issues? And, and also, um, do, do these issues help you get beyond the sometimes uh, narrow stereotypes, sometimes racist stereotypes that people use toward China and the United States? I definitely think they do. And I think that uh, this new generation of leaders that's coming up in the United States is really much more aware of China as a world power and a major U.S. policy issue than past generations. In a way, I think China will be like the Soviet Union and Russia were to an earlier generation in the 1980s in terms of we're going to have to study China much more in depth and think about the policy in a much more complex way than than the simple extremes that we see often in the political sphere. Well, and I think what I'm very excited about is that we have scholars uh, and uh, political activists like uh, Sheena who who uh, understand these issues and can educate us. Sheena, thank you for sharing your insights and, and helping us to at least begin to understand some of these complex issues, all of which deserve individual podcasts <laughs> unto themselves. Uh, you really were, were brilliant in bringing these issues out for us. Thank you, Sheena. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. And I, I, uh, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about these things today. 
Well, and thank you, Zachary, for your poem. Uh, I should also mention that we've and done this. And for your this- questions. Those were great. Thank you. Yes, he, he always asks the best questions. <laughs> uh, and uh, I should mention also that we've done this podcast in partnership with Horns of a Dilemma, which is another wonderful podcast uh, put out by the Texas National Security Network and the Clemens Center and War on the Rocks and the Strauss Center, all of which are our partners here at the University of Texas. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for this week of uh, This is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.